All right. Well, good morning again, and glad you guys are here. If you are following along with us over the last few weeks, we are working through uh, the book of James, uh, and I've entitled this James Faith Made Complete. We've been looking at uh, kind of a broad picture of James, and I didn't really intend to go verse by verse, but that's kind of what we're doing, and so that's just what we're going to continue to do. I say this every time we get to this point, but I don't want my repetition in this to become kind of mundane or for you to forget what I'm saying, but uh, but what I love about the book of James, what I love about preaching through this series is what draws us to James is exactly the same thing that pushes us away from James. He, he says things, he has a way of phrasing things that are so in our faces and kind of, uh, kind of up in our, in our business, if you would. It, it kind of takes away all of our pretense. It steps away of our, our self-righteousness and it makes us kind of push back because he interacts with us on a very deep and personal and intimate level. It's really polarizing on one sense. We love James, but we hate James at the same time. That's the reason why, uh, why Luther had such a big deal with, with James. He didn't like the whole uh, verses that we're actually going to cover today. Luther himself, Martin Luther, Reformation Luther, not Martin Luther King James, uh, but Martin Luther, uh, he, he said that the book of James should be ripped out and burned in the fire. He, he hated the book of James because of the passages that we're going to read uh, this, level, uh, this morning because it's so, like I said, it's, there's such a, a push and pull to this book. It kind of kind of hits us in a way that we, we love, but we hate it. And we hate it, but we love it. And we come on a little bit more. So I'm going to tell you uh, that, that really this morning is going to be a little close to the vest. It's going to be kind of hard. It's going to be, uh, it's hard to swallow on some levels. But uh, here's the promise that we need to make to each other this morning before we ever even start. Uh, when we read tough verses in scripture and our natural inclination is to deflect that deeper meaning of those verses to somebody else. Right? We say things like, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that this morning. Or, man, that message was for so-and-so. But, but really, what I want us to understand is that the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, before the Word of God is living and active, right? sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Word today is for you. There's no mistake that you're here. You're not here by chance. You're here on purpose. It's not for somebody else. It's for you this morning. Because if we, if we come to it as though it's for somebody else, then we're not allowing the Word to do what it does, right? Hebrews says it's living and it's active. It penetrates deep. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It doesn't say it's a weapon that you can use against somebody else. It doesn't say that you can, this is only for really bad sinners or that you can kind of slough this off and make it unpersonal. The word is very personal. It doesn't even say that you can hear it and not be changed by it. When we hear the word, it changes us and it intersects us in our very most, probably most vulnerable and insecure places. Don't slough this off this morning because it's hard. Because you think it doesn't apply to you, but you think maybe somebody else should have heard it. It's for you this morning. If you've got your Bible, go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, when you think about the verses of James, you think about this. When you think about, uh, if, you've, if you've grown up in church or maybe you've even read through the book of James yourself, these are the verses that you think about when you think about James. And so, so don't miss it because of the familiarity, but hear what the Word says. And let's read it together, James 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but does not have deeds, can such a faith save him? Let me just say this from the beginning. This is, uh, this is not James advocating for a works-based justification, meaning that he's not saying that if you do enough, you know, that you can earn your salvation. I believe James, above all people, really understands and knows that our salvation is solely based 
on what Jesus did for us on the cross, right? It's by grace through faith in Christ that we are saved. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Galatians 2, 21, do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. My favorite verse, uh, Romans eleven six. 6, if by grace, and it's no longer by works, for if it were, grace would no longer be grace. I really like the way Paul puts all that stuff. Make no mistake about it. We can't earn our salvation. It's a gift given by grace, accepted through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if we work out uh, uh, understanding of, of right standing with God, then Jesus could really die for nothing, right? If we could just work our way there, and really, if that's the case, how much is enough? How much would we have to do to earn it? How many good things would we have to pile up to, to, to kind of counteract all the bad things that we did. And you know who probably knew that better than anybody else? James, right? Can you imagine growing up with your brother, Jesus, who said all that he said and who claimed to be all that he claimed to be, and James didn't believe a word of it. He didn't get it. As a matter of fact, the Bible says at some point he, he was making fun of his brother, and he tried to control him. You saw all that he did. You witnessed him beaten and bloody, nailed to a cross, stabbed in the side, and placed in a tomb. And then three days later, you see the resurrected, whole, glorified body of Jesus. How many I'm sorry's would James have to say to make up for standing by and watching his brother die? How many hoops would he have to jump through? How, many, how much penance would he have to do to earn back salvation, right? Nothing can ever make up for unbelief. James knows that it's by grace through faith. He's just simply saying this. If you believe it and you never really live like it, then do you really genuinely believe it? If you claim to have faith but have no deeds, can such a faith save you? And church, this is what I think James hits so close to home for us. Churches are filled with people who say that they believe in God, who say that they are saved, who claim faith when life gets hard and when the worlds fall apart, they come running to God, but no other part of their life reflects it. There's no devotion to God. There's no yielding to his will. There's no time in prayer seeking out what he wants. There's no time in reading his word and hearing his voice. Real talk, there's no semblance of relationship outside of a claimed faith. And don't get puffed up and arrogant in this moment. Because there are hundreds of people who claim faith and claim Emmanuel Baptist Church as their church and there's nothing in their life that proves it nothing in their life that proves it and James asks the question can such a faith save you and hear me please hear my heart I, I, I love this church I've devoted my heart and my life to this church for almost 17 years IBC is a good church it's a great Church, but I am sick and tired of our complacent attitudes when it comes to living out our faith. 
We are stuck in this good old boy mindset where it doesn't matter what you do, it matters what you say. It doesn't matter if you're drunk on the weekends. It doesn't matter if your husbands don't lead your families. It doesn't matter if we let our kids dress and act and behave in questionable ways. It doesn't matter if church is negotiable. It doesn't matter if we serve or involve ourselves in anything outside of an hour on Sunday mornings. It doesn't matter if I don't read my Bible. It doesn't matter if we only, we only come to church and we're bored out of our minds and we don't worship and we aren't broken over our sin and we're not really worried about lost people and we don't respond to the Word and the altar is empty and it stays empty. It doesn't matter if our hearts are hardened because we love Jesus. Because we say we do. My question to you is, do you? Do you really love him? How would anybody know? How would anybody know? And James would say, would a faith like that save you? It's not about doing all those things. But when God is real in your life and you have a genuine understanding of what the grace that you have been given cost God, then everything in your life should reflect that grace that you've been given. Everything that we do should be driven by the faith that we say that we possess. And the reality is we've got a lot of people who claim something that their lives don't reflect. And many of you would say, Matt, I get it. But there's nothing in me that wants to do all that. There's nothing in me that draws me into that deeper level. I know I'm supposed to on some level, but I just really don't want to. And so my bigger question this morning would be, are you genuinely saved? Like, I don't say that flippantly, and I don't, I'm not saying that to make anybody question their salvation. It's not my heart. You guys should know me better than that. But church, we too often fall in the trap of this easy believism where all we have to do is walk an aisle and say a prayer, and we're good. We don't have to change anything. We don't have to develop any relationship with Jesus. We don't have to sacrifice anything. We just get our ticket punched, and we're good to go. But that's not the message that Jesus preached. It's not what he said when he was walking around. He said, Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. John 14, 15, if you really love me, you'll obey what I command. John 10, 27, my sheep know my voice and I know them and they follow me. And the one that should scare us to death, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Church, that should shake us. It should mess us up to the very bones of our being. Jesus' message was a message of repentance and obedience. There's no difference in what Jesus is saying and what James is saying in James chapter 2, verse 14. And hear me, and I love you, and I love this church enough to say this. I don't care if that hurts your feelings. I care whether or not you're saved. I don't care if you leave and complain about the message today. I care whether or not you're saved. We have to stop claiming something that may not be real in our lives. And James pushes us beyond that comfort zone. 
And he gives us some real life application to keep reading verse 15, chapter 2 of James. Suppose a brother or sister is without warm clothes or daily food, and one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is if not accompanied by action, is dead. This is an incredible example because well, this is something we all do, right? We can all relate to this. We've all been there. Man, I hope things work out for you. I'll be, I'll be praying for you. Good luck with that. God bless you. It's like we have this, all these little pat answers that we give to genuine needs. And most of the time, uh, that just kind of we use those things to keep us from committing to have to actually get our hands dirty and help people. And we say things like, man, I, I just really hope that works out for you. That's a whole other sermon. I don't have time to get into that. I, I remember watching the Olympics. Uh, we'll occasionally turn those on. Uh, and, and, you know, this person's doing all these flips and back twists and all that kind of stuff. And they land and... Uh, and I'm sitting on the couch eating a bowl of cereal. <laughs> and they take one little baby step, and I'm like, what a loser, right? And I'm sitting there eating Christmas tree cakes and eating cereal because I eat those as long as I can during the year. Um, and and I, I say things like, man, I, they should have done better, right? They should know better. What's wrong with them? And all the while, I'm sitting back doing nothing. I think a lot of us are in the same position. We see people doing a lot of stuff that they they're trying their best at, and they make one little mistake, and we sit back and go, what a loser. Man, they really messed up. And all the time we have this faith that we just don't do anything with. I think sometimes God looks at us and says, how dare you? How dare you say something when you're not putting your own faith in action? There are genuine needs all around us. Genuine needs of people who, who are broken, who are, who are needing some things. I, I have conversations with people almost every week who just are hurting. And if I were to look at them and just say, God bless you, good luck, and that's it, then am I really, am I really helping them on the level that they need to be helped on? Even if I do, you know, we have, a, we have a care fund that we help people out with. If I just give them the money and go on, is that it? I've had, you know how many people I have come to the office and ask about the man that lived over by the cemetery? I'm talking about Mr. Charles O'Neill. Who, who when they would come and ask for some help, Mr. Charles would give them help, but the first thing he'd do, he'd make sure they understood who Jesus was. He had intentional conversations with people. He didn't just slough them off and push them on and say, it's on with you, I, I got other things to do. He was putting his faith into action. Church, we hold the hope of the whole world in our hearts. This message of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power to save and rescue souls from death. And most of the time, we look at a dying world and we say things like, you are not worth my obedience. You are not worth my effort. You are not worth an uncomfortable conversation. You're not worth me living what I say I believe. And I know we'd never say it like that, right? One commentary says this, the comparison of these verses are very obvious and striking. The sense is that faith in itself without acts that correspond to it and which would prompt is as cold and heartless and unmeaning and useless as it would be to say to one who was dissolute of necessities of life, depart in peace. Is that how you want your faith described? Cold, heartless, unmeaning, and useless? Faith that is not accompanied by action is dead. 
cold, it's heartless, it's unmeaning, and it's useless. James does us all a favor and he presents the counter argument next. And I love this because he kind of he just does the work for us. Verse 18, but some will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good, even demons believe that and shudder. And I wrote down in my notes underneath that, wow, 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 wow. If you don't write in your Bible, you should. You should underline that, highlight it, circle it, put a big star beside it, whatever you got to do, because James presents the counter-argument that blows that counter-argument out of the water. He says, show me your faith without deeds. Show me. Because you can't. Then he says, I'll show you my faith by what I do, how I live my life. Jesus himself said when he was talking about false prophets, he says people are preaching the gospel that's not true or people are claiming something that's not believed. Matthew chapter 7 verse 17 says every good tree bears good fruit and every bad tree bears bad fruit. And verse 20 says by their fruit you will recognize them. So the question has to be asked, what kind of spiritual fruit are you producing? Is it good fruit or is it bad fruit? Because every good tree will produce good fruit. Some of you say, I'm, I'm not producing anything. <laughs> right, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of in a lull. Maybe I've, I've hit a plateau in my spiritual life. Maybe I'm not really doing anything. I'm not doing anything bad, but I'm not really doing anything at all. Jesus said, we know you by your fruit. And so if you're not doing anything, are you, what are you wasting your time on? What are we just coasting through life? Well, because that's what we do, right? Well, we claim this faith and then we just coast through until the end. We claim this faith and then we, we kind of put it on cruise control until things get hard. And then we run back to this faith that we claim. And we ask God, like, why would you let this happen? How could you? Why me? And all the while, we're not really living out. Not to say that bad things don't happen to good people. It happens all the time. But when you're in a deep relationship with God and when you're living it out and when you're, there's fruit of God in your life, there's all those kind of things. When those bad things come, you just go, you know what, God, God, you must have something for me through this. It doesn't make it any more fun to go through, but I understand there's got to be a bigger picture. James says, show me your faith without deeds, but you can't. Years ago, there was a, there was a student who was in our student ministry, and, uh, and Matt Young and Kevin Taylor kind of took him underneath his, their wings and spent a lot of time with him, a real intentional time with him, and uh, just, just kind of made this kid feel at home. And it was really neat to see happen and play out. And, uh, and they would pick at him just like they do anybody else, if you know both of those guys. They would uh, kind of uh, just get him all riled up about nothing. And, and they'd say something completely off the wall, and I can still hear this kid's response in the back of my head. Matter of fact, we'll still say it in conversations and just laugh because he was so funny. He was so dry, and he would just look at him and go, prove it. And they'd say something ridiculous. He'd just prove it, and he'd put his hands down like, you can't, right? And we'll still say, this is exactly what James is saying to his readers in James chapter 2. He says, oh, oh, you think that all that stuff happens, all those, all those things? You think you can claim something and not really live it? Prove it. Prove it. I'll let my life prove what I believe. I'll let my decisions and my actions and my priorities, I'll let my relationships and my service and my devotion, I'll let my worship and my repentance and my brokenness prove faith I have. 
You want to know what faith looks like? Watch my life. That's what James is saying. Because I live it. And I live it out. James takes it one step further because he's James and he doesn't, he's not afraid of hurting anybody's feelings. And he says, oh, you believe that there's one God good. Well, you know what he's referencing there? Remember James's primary audience, we talked about this, I think, in week one or two. Shelton introduced it in week one and I came back in week two. James' primary audience was he believed that the Jews would understand that Jesus was the Messiah and that they would essentially uh, become Christians, right? They would, they would follow the Messiah and, and follow his teachings and, and become Christians. And so he's writing specifically to the Jewish audience. And he says, oh, you believe there's one God, good. He's, he's kind of hitting them real close to the vest. That's a good way to say that. This is, this is a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the Shema. This is the, the, the prayer that Jews would say almost on a daily basis. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right? That's how that, that prayer starts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so this prayer is something they would recite. It was ingrained in their culture. They knew it. They, they would just, I mean, it was just a part of who they were. And James looks at them and goes, oh, you believe there's one God? Well, good. You know what? Who else believes that? The demons believe that. And they shudder. And we all, as good church people, go, did he just call them demons? <laughs> and James goes, yep, sure did. Sure did. Because if that's all you're hanging on to, and the demons believe in God too. Oh, I believe in God. Well, good. It's great. The devil himself believes there's a God. Our, our real life application here is that you can say that you believe in God all you want. The devil himself believes that. But if you really believed it, then everything in your life would reflect it. Faith is more than just saying all the right things. It's a genuine faith-based trust in God. And when you really believe it, when you really connect those dots, and there's no hiding it, right? There's no questioning it. Every single thing in your life reflects that. But for most of us, we go, oh, that's for somebody else. Somebody else will really live that out. You keep reading, we're going to get to our theme verse for this entire series, James 20, uh, 20 verse 2, verse 20 through 23. Says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So he's referencing something that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 22. Most of you guys are familiar with this story. God promises Abraham a child. As a matter of fact, he says that uh, you're going to have descendants that outnumber the sky, the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And then finally, through a series of events, uh, Abraham and Sarah have this child, Isaac, right? And then God looks at Abraham and says, give me that child. This thing that you wanted more than anything, the thing that you prayed for the longest in your life, this thing that means the most to you, give him to me. And Abraham, believing that God would provide, 
climbs the mountain and God does. Right? We know this story. There's a ram. God stops Abraham before he offers Isaac. And, and, and there's a ram there. And we, and we, we see the, the substitution. And God says this, because you have done this and not withheld your son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants more as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Abraham called that place Mount Moriah. He called it the Lord will provide. In Hebrew, that word is Jehovah Raha. If we Anglicize that word, it's Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. If you don't know, Mount Moriah is the same place where uh, Solomon built the temple of God. It's where the Ark of the Covenant sat. The same place that Abraham offered Isaac. Many people believe that, um, that Golgotha was on Mount Moriah. Not, probably not the same spot, but very close to the same spot where Jesus was offered. This is a very important place in Israel's history. The Lord will provide. He, he still does, right? James references this act and this promise by God. and He says his faith was made complete by what he did. What do you mean his faith? Well, if you were to go back in the story, right, we were just reading out of Genesis chapter 22, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, this is when God spoke to Abraham the first time. Matter of fact, his name was Abram then. It's when God spoke to Abram the first time. Genesis 15, verse 5 through 6 says, He took him outside and said, Look up to the heavens and count the stars, indeed, if you can. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. In this incredible verse, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. See, Abraham believed God long before any promise of God was put into action. He believed God before God did anything, really before Abraham did anything. He had faith before the promise was fulfilled, before Isaac was ever born. Before any of that, his faith was deemed him as righteous. Meaning, faith comes first. James not arguing that. And Abraham was justified by his faith. Then his faith was made complete by what he said. That, that phrase, made complete, is the Greek word teleao. And it's just really fun to say. It sounds like you're hiccuping. But it just means this. Complete, perfect, bring to an end, accomplished. Right? Right? Abraham's faith was accomplished. It was, kind of, it was backed up by what he did. Another commentary said it like this, does not mean that its faith in itself was defective before this, that this defect was remedied by some good works or that there was any deficiency in the right kind of faith can do in the matter of justification, which is to be helped out by good works. But there is that kind of completion that a thing has when it's fully developed and fairly carried out. There's this whole faith aspect in living out active faith. James keeps going in verse 25 and gives another example about Rahab and the spies. We don't have time to get into all that story. You can read that later. And he concludes this thought with this phrase in verse 26. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And that's really the reality. That's where James and myself, for that matter, is trying to communicate. It's faith saves you, period. Right? Hard stop. Faith saves you. 
But faith that's not lived out, that's not evidenced in every area of your life is dead. I think that's the hook for this morning when you, when you really think about it. You can have a dead faith. You can. Right? You, you can understand that Jesus was the Son of God. You can believe that his death on the cross was a substitutionary death, that he died in our place, that he paid the penalty for our sin. Right? You can believe that he rose again and that he conquered death in the grave and that his resurrection is the hope of eternal life for anybody who believes in him. You can confess your sin and repent and accept salvation in Jesus' name and ask that he be the Lord of your life. You can do all of that and absolutely nothing else. And the Bible says that if you meant it, then you're saved. Period. But James says, if that's all you do, then that's a dead faith. Dead faith just goes through the motions. Dead faith doesn't engage people with activity of God. Dead faith just goes through the motions of religious activity, right? We just check off our boxes. Dead faith sees a broken world and assumes somebody else will do something about it. Dead faith does what it has to and nothing more. Dead faith pretends and plays at intimacy and relationship with God, but never really experiences it. Dead faith uses God to get out of hell, but never ensures that anybody else follows them to heaven. And when I was writing this sermon, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's, it's not just that there are lost people in our church, because there are. There are lost people in churches all over our town, all over our county, state, nation, and world. Hear me, if, if you've never really believed, like, like what we just got through discussing, if you never really trusted in God and accepted the gift of salvation, then you, then you are lost. That's what Scripture tells us. And the Bible says without hope, destined to be eternally separated from God forever in a very real place that we don't talk about very much called hell, right? If you're hearing this this morning and, and, and you say, man, that's me, then the good news is the Bible says today is the day of salvation, right? There's, there's hope that we can, we, can, we, can, uh, we can put our faith in him. We don't have to do things. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to get our life in order first. We just have to confess and repent and believe. Remember, it's by grace through faith in Christ. It's not just that there are lost people in church. It's that the church is full of people that have dead faith. You have just as much Jesus as you want and no more. You've surrendered as much as your life to him as you want to. You will be, you'll be obedient to a point with him. But then after that, it's, you know, this is my life. I'm going to live it how I want to. I'm going to live it on my own terms. God, you can have this area, but all this is mine. And if you're honest with yourself and you're living life like that way, you'd probably be honest enough to admit that your faith is kind of just dead. There's really no life in it. You're just going through the motions and hoping God shakes it all out in the end in your favor. You got your, you got your salvation secure, 
but there's really nothing else that draws you into deep relationship with God. You come to church, maybe even you go through the motions of, of, of worship, what we call worship. You never really connect emotionally or spiritually to what, what maybe even you're singing about. And somebody like me stands on the stage week after week and we preach truth and we preach uh, what God's word says and you're like, man, that's good stuff, but uh, all right, what's next? And you just check off your boxes and you keep going through life. And you barely have this faint heartbeat of faith. And most of the time you can't even feel that. Remember that verse that I read at the beginning of the, script, uh, the uh, service this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active, right? There's a little bit of a double meaning in that passage, all because of uh, the Apostle John. I'll just tell you that. Now, John wrote his gospel, and he opened in John chapter 1, verse 1, and he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We go down to John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, right? So, uh, so John takes this Greek word, logos, L-O-G-O-S, that we translate to the word, word. And he appropriates that to the very being and the very person of Jesus, right? And so we talk about the Logos of God, we talk about Jesus, the Son of God. Now there's no way, and I'll just be real honest, there's no way that we know if the author of Hebrews had, had any kind of connective thought to that either. When he says the Word of God is living and active. What I believe the author of Hebrews meant is he's talking about Scripture. He's actually talking about the Old Testament. But if we appropriate John's meaning to this Hebrew verse, and we say things like the Word of God is living and active, we're talking about Jesus being living and active. How can we have this Jesus as the king of our hearts and have it dead? Because Jesus is living and active. Right, Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 11 says, The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And so if God's Spirit dwells within us, it's not a dead spirit. We are the only ones. Christians are the only ones who claim a faith to a God who's not dead. Muhammad's dead. Buddha's dead. Confucius is dead. And we say, well, we have this living God who lives inside of us, but our faith and our actions are so dead to him. James says, can that kind of faith save you? If he is alive and active, should we not in turn be active and spirit-filled lives in response to faith that we have in him? We've got to stop living dead faith. We've got to stop going through the motions with our head down and just trying to muddle through life. We've got to actually do what God's calling us to do. We've got to stand up for the things that God's calling us to stand up for. And we've got to start living out this faith, ensuring that people that we know, people that we love, people that we just run into, understand who Jesus is and can put their faith and hope in something that they can see lived out in our life. We're not perfect people. 
We're not trying to live out perfect life. We're just saying, listen, we are trying to strive after what God has for us. And I'm not going to sit back in dead faith any longer. I'm going to live it out. I'm going to let everybody know there's something different about me. And it's not me. It's him. That's what real life living looks like. I believe, church, that we owe it to him. We owe it to him to genuinely, truly live out our faith. Can we imagine standing before the Father and saying, yeah, I'm saved. I genuinely meant it. Never did anything with it. Never really lived it. I never even really pointed anybody else to who Jesus was. I kind of played at it, honestly. Is that enough to get me? Is that, is that okay? And if you believed it and you did it, then yes. I mean, let's go back to the thief on the cross. He didn't have time to get down and do all these really good things. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah, you're, you're in. But isn't he worth more than that? Isn't he worth our effort? Isn't he worth our, our stepping out of our comfort zone and out of this good old boy mentality that we talked about earlier and actually living out what we say we believe, actually putting feet to our faith and letting people know who Jesus is and how he can change their life? Church, we owe him at least that. And for too long, we've sat back. And too long, we've acted like it doesn't matter or somebody else will tell or somebody else can be the example. I'm going to keep doing whatever I can do. We're not broken over our lives. We're not broken over the laws. You know how I know that? Because we don't, we don't fill the altar. And I'm not saying that you have to come forward. That's not anything. I don't care if you come forward or not. I'm just saying our altar of our hearts are empty because we're not broken. We're not crying over people that we know are lost and going to hell. Somebody else will tell them. We're not broken over our sin. We think God's going to judge us on a curve. It's not as bad as so-and-so. At least I'm not doing this. At least I'm not doing that. It doesn't matter. It's time we actually started living out what we believe. We come to the feet of the one who saved us and say, I am sorry. I've missed it for too long. I'm sorry I've played at it for too long. I'm sorry that it's been a joke and a game and I've used you for just salvation and nothing more. It's time that we live out our faith. We owe it to him. Would you stand with me as TJ comes and Miss Ruth plays? We're going to have an invitation, and this is not meant for any motion from you. I'm, I'm not asking you to come forward just so that we feel better about ourselves. That's not what this is for. You can deal with God right where you sit. That's all that matters. I don't care if you have motion in the aisles or not. I care what God's doing in your heart. And for a lot of us, church, it's time that we just stood up and said, I'm tired of having dead faith. I'm tired of not proving what I say is most important in my life. It's time for me to start living out this grace that God has given me that I'm able to be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And I will be an example to that to anybody else. It's time, church, we stop playing at it 
and start living it fully. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. Thank you for the truth of your word and the truth of James that isn't afraid to hurt our feelings. And Father, as we talked about a number of different things this morning, God, first and foremost, the most important thing is if somebody doesn't understand who Jesus is, we never come to that faith moment in our life. Today's the day that we can handle that. Today's the day that we can settle that in our hearts, that we can come in full repentance and accept the gift of grace that you have given, God. If there's somebody here today that doesn't know who Jesus is, I pray they ask somebody. God, whether they're bold enough to step out and come talk to me, I'd love to do that. Maybe they just need to grab somebody who's next to them and say, will you, will you pray with me? Because I need to get some stuff straight. God, maybe it's, maybe it's that. Maybe it's, we've got a lot of people here who claim something that don't really live it. And God, maybe that's what you're pushing in on us, that, that we've been taking advantage of the grace that we've been given and we've been dead on the inside for far too long. And so, Father, we come, we come today and we just ask for forgiveness. Father, we say we're sorry for taking you and your son for granted, for taking the gift that you've given us and doing nothing with it. God, help us live out what we say we believe. God, help us be an example of who Jesus is and how he can love the most unlovable. God, it's time that we stop living dead faith. And so today I pray that you push us into something brand new, God, that you challenge us something deep. And that we respond, God, that our lives are a reflection of who you are and what you've done for us. God, if somebody needs to come forward and pray, I pray they do that. God, if they need to come talk to me, God, I'm here and I'm available. This is your opportunity to work in our hearts, and we just ask that you do that in a very real and genuine way. It's in Jesus' name we pray.